Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me here today in person is Mr. Ron Tight, an award-winning creative director, also the founder and CEO of content marketing agency Church and State, formerly known as the Tight Group. And Ron is also a keynote speaker. He formerly produced and hosted the award-winning comedy show Monkey Toast. And he also authored a book called Everyone's an Artist, or at least they should be. So folks, if you're having one of those days where you're down on your accomplishments, probably not a good idea to Google Ron Tight. <laughs> Ron, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. And thank you for those lovely, kind words. <laughs> you are very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. So uh, congratulations are in order. Yes. The, the recent birth of your child, Maxwell. Yes. Uh, at the age of 47, I thought, you know what, let's make this up a bit. Let's have a child for the first time. So my wife and I, yeah, we uh, he's now four weeks old. Yeah. And so if I nod off, it has nothing to do with the content <laughs> we're discussing. It's because I was up for a 3 a.m. feeding and then a 5.30 diaper change. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I've already been peed on like eight times already. Oh, really? Already eight times. So if, you, if there's a stench of urine... <laughs> Coming through your speakers, listeners. I didn't want to say anything. That's what it is. It's <laughs> Maxwell and his wild penis. <laughs> you know, we were talking earlier about Maxwell, so it's just Maxwell, you yeah. know? And so I, I love that you, you know, as a marketing guy, just called your child Maxwell. Because so many people these days, it's like Maxwell, Dennis, Napoleon, Andrew. <laughs> you know, they give their kids five names, yeah. right? So Yeah, we, we put Jonathan as the middle name, uh, uh, which was my wife's father. Yeah. And uh, and that's it. But, but the funniest comment came from my friend uh, Jan Caruana, who's a brilliant comedian and improviser. And writer, and she responded to the the announcement, uh, yeah. you know that Maxwell tight, and she she just wrote Max tight attorney at law. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's like, perfect. It is. It's such a great way. To... Or a private eye. A private eye. Max tight. That, that private eye. <laughs> That's great. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, a superhero. We kind of Max tight. Yeah. So he's already got a couple of vocations lined up for him. <laughs> watch. He'll be this like really timid shy. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's always how it works, right? Your name is Max? Yes, but you can call me Minimum. Like. <laughs> <laughs> minimum loose. Just go with the flow. Minimum loose. Just all go with the flow. It's all good. <laughs> That'll be his alias. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we have got your tunes here. And uh, this is a pretty extensive, varied collection. I like very, this. very diverse. Yeah, yeah. This and is different, great. totally different reasons. Not like all the same emotional response. Like yes. Just a very different emotional response for it. It was an interesting exercise to just go through. Like, hmm, like what? What are the songs that mm -hmm. mean something to me? Yeah. And and why? Yeah. And uh, so it was a great exercise to even just come up with them. It's fun, right? Yeah. That's the other side of doing this is, is is researching these songs and coming up with them and maybe even rediscovering that music again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm glad that you did it this way because that is the crux of what we're trying to achieve here is the songs that really make your skin vibrate, right? Yeah. Not maybe the most popular songs or what have you. It's those ones that really kind of have an emotional pull on you. So. Well, I also felt pressure because cause you're a music guy and yeah. I'm not like I'm I love music, but I'm not a, I'm not a quote unquote music guy, you know. Yeah. And and I thought, oh, gee, am I gonna have to come up with some obscure, cool <laughs> track that? Oh, you don't know that B side from Bowie and seven, you know, like. Um, but I, so I just went in a completely different direction. Like, no, these mean something to me for weird reasons, and uh, let's explore that. Perfect. That's yeah. perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Okay, so your first one here is country music legend George Jones, and the song is "Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes." Yeah. This, uh, this, the emotional response from this one is is tears. Weirdly, um, you know, for for those that don't know the song, you know, he really the the notion is he he talks about all the country legends who have passed away, mm -hmm. and and this great history of country music from the Grand Old Opry and it kind of coming out of uh, you know the the breakdown of country versus western and bluegrass and all that stuff, yep. and when the music really matured. And then it, it created these stars mm -hmm. like George Jones and like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and, and Elvis Presley to, to a little bit. 
and and um, why it, it's really significant um, is because my um, my mom was not a music person, but she was hardcore country western music. Okay, and so growing up, the sounds in my home were those sounds. It was Folsom Prison Blues. Yes. It, you know, and, and, and it was Okie from Muskogee. Yep. And it was Willie Nelson and it was Riddle George Lynn. Jones and Tammy Wynette and just hardcore old school country. Yeah. And I grew up hating it. Me too. You know, because it wasn't cool. It's not cool. Like the weird outfits they would wear. And, and um, it was also very depressing, I found. It's very as depressing. A kid, right. And when I tell you this part, it gets even more depressing okay. because um, my mom passed away in 2001. And when we were looking at like, what's, we should play music at her funeral. Like, there, you know, there's always like the one track. And we're like, well, I don't know. Like, what would you play? And we we stumbled on this song and it was just like, who's going to fill their shoes and time back to who's going to fill her shoes. Perfect. And And then after that, I, because of the song, I began to really... I think understand that I actually did like like I love Johnny Cash. Yeah, so do I. You know, and yeah. and 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 there's some Willie Nelson where I love it and 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 even there's I I think I found the beauty of George Jones. And I may not love it. Yeah. But I, there's something really compelling like nobody hit it out of the park in that genre like George Jones, and that should be celebrated. Oh, he had one of the greatest voices in country uh -huh. music, for sure. But I think that, you know, as a kid, and you and I are relatively the same age, I think yeah. we're on the same age. Um, I'm 32, is that what you are? I'm, no. I'm 29, actually. Okay, good, yeah. So we're about the same. <laughs> Um, when you're a kid, you have no appreciation for that music because there's no bombast to it. Right. There's, no, there's no, you know, sensation to it, yeah. really. It's just very kind of depressing and, and, and almost monotone, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh. But as you get older and you appreciate the, the, the breadth of it, yeah. you know, like Johnny Cash is fantastic. I, I love Johnny Cash. Yeah. And even, you know, George Jones and, and Loretta Lynn, like you appreciate the, the, the kind of depth of it. Yeah. As as you, you know, become more wise when you turn 29 and 32. Yep. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean just like, you know, people love the every man growing up in Jersey Springsteen kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I mean, that was to the south of the US. Like that was. It was Springsteen of of Tennessee. That I mean, George Jones had a rough life. Yeah. yeah I mean, this guy was a massive alcoholic. Yes. Um it's a weird story. My so my dad, who we weren't that close with, and and uh, you know you know who kind of flew the coop really early, was a musician in his day. Okay, and um, and I I see a lot of my dad from what I know of him in in Johnny Cash. You mm. know that he he kind of looked like a Johnny Cash. Yeah, he had that kind of rough exterior about Johnny Cash. Yeah, um, and um, I remember my mom telling a story on going to see Johnny Cash live, and somehow my dad got them backstage oh and johnny cash was too drunk to perform really that he could not go on stage wow and they just made the crowd wait when was this do you remember I, it would have been late 60s i would imagine or maybe <laughs> mid 60s in okay. montreal okay he could not go on that's how hammered he was you know in the music that you and i probably would appreciate it's not that but it's someone doing blow or yeah or, you know <laughs> but it's, so it's all the same stuff the same torture and journey and everything yeah. but yeah. it's just the tennessee journey and you know i don't know i i didn't live that journey but i i certainly appreciate it yeah well that's a great point it's all the same right he was a kind of a tennessee whiskey drinking guy yep. but then you know in the 60s came jim morrison yeah. who would pass out on stage yeah Aerosmith, same thing. The '80s, like cocaine, all of it, right? So it's that that same kind of ethos is there. Yeah. So yeah. It also, you know, a lot of people aspire to be those people, and it's like you. I think you just want the end result. You don't want the journey because the journey's pretty ugly. It is. I think a lot of people see it as almost the, there's romantic affectation involved. Yeah. Right. The tragic artist yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know you got to be really careful how far you kind of delve into that romanticism otherwise you're not going to make it out yeah yeah i saw i mean my background's in comedy and i i would see that occasionally in comedy where there's the, like the people who were maybe brilliant comedians but their life was just a shit show and yeah and it's like mm, i don't want that yeah you know 
that's a that's a very scary notion you know the the idea that comedians are actually you know very depressed people and that's almost like they're kind of it's almost like an alias yeah right? so it's almost like a shield for, for for them yeah there's great insight in anger yeah. right like when you think of great bits in comedy and great passages or licks in music mm -hmm. that it's at the catalyst for it is typically anger right it's like what's the deal with the thing <laughs> well the reason you say what's the deal is because you're you're frustrated with exactly it, right? like, why are they doing that? that's seinfeld's career basically it's, yeah. it's frustration yeah. yeah and and some people it takes over and they become an angry comic and now they're just ranting on stage mm -hmm. it's being able to turn that anger and that frustration into something poetic yes and interesting and funny yeah. and, in, and in music is being able to take the anger and frustration and and sell it yeah so what's what's really interesting is so we name our son maxwell yeah and the first song that comes to my head is maxwell silver hammer maxwell silver hammer of course right? yeah and i just and i'm like oh, i don't i'm not a big beatles guy but I, you know i know i kind of start singing it and i'm in the room after he's born and i and I Google the lyrics to the song. Oh, it's, yeah, it's scary. It's about murder. That's right, it's about somebody who's on trial for killing somebody. Yeah. yeah. Boom Boom Maxwell Silver Hammer goes down upon her head. <laughs> boom Boom Maxwell Silver Hammer makes sure that she is That's dead. Right. And But it's got the trombones and the band, and it's I know. It's this it's joyful, like the, playful song about murder. That is the classic dichotomy of 70s music. I yeah. talk about this all the time. You know, the flouncy, fun music, and then the lyrics are dire, and they make you want to kill yourself. The Carpenters, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? It's funny. The other day, I was, I was talking to somebody about this. Well, I, I talked about this a lot because, very funny story, Amy Davies. Yes. Uh, talking to her dad. Yeah. Right, I shouldn't tell tales out of school, but this is really <laughs> funny. So I'm talking to her dad about uh, my book, and he said, "Well, you know, Brent, I was reading your book, and uh, I noticed that you mentioned that the Carpenters were creepier than Black Sabbath." And I said, "It's true, they were." And he looks at me and he says, "How could you say such a thing?" <laughs> you know, and he's, he's a little bit angry. I'm like, well, "Were you in the Carpenters at one yeah. point? Like, well, why are you so mad?" <laughs> but it's true. It's so on top of the mountain, looking. Yeah, that was them, right? Yeah. Down on Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, if you think about their their most popular songs, yeah, um, it's it's creepy music. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to be freaked out by the Carpenters. But you know, anyway, <laughs> it's just, I'm, I'm sidetracking here. But same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maxwell Silver Hammer. Yeah. I I w almost want to learn how to play the trombone just to play that. Part, burr, 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 you know. Anyhow. Yeah. I still sing it to him now. He only he won't he won't, he won't know the lyrics for a while. He won't know what they mean. It's such a playful song, and I, I just don't want to sing "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." And where, where is the where is the point where you stop singing that song to him? <laughs> <laughs> like that? At his trial. <laughs> so, the, I'm sorry, Daddy was was just having fun. Through the phone and the the, 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 the screen. Knock knock. Yeah. Glass. <laughs> but there were trombones. <laughs> All right. Going to hell for that. Don't Maybe. Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> the Beastie Boys is next. A classic with No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, after I kind of got out of that, out of the, you know, the womb of, you know, my mother's music. <laughs> and um, I remember, you know, my soccer coach used to work for Quality Records. And and I remember him giving me like a bunch of like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Nice. And and that's such old school. And I, I and I get confused with terms whether it was rap or hip hop or I don't know whatever you want to call it. Yeah. In those days, it was I think it was we were just calling it rap. And so that I started to appreciate that music. And you know this is when break dancing was kind of coming in. And yeah. You know. Um. And then I heard the Beastie Boys. And like everybody else on the planet, it started with, you know, Fight for Your Right to Party. And then I got the cassette and uh, License to L. Yep. And I thought, what is this? Yeah. I, who? And I was just so blown away by that I had just never heard that sound before. I think the only other time that I had that reaction to going, what is that? Was like the first time I heard Amy Winehouse. Yep. And yeah. And it's not one of the five. but. You know, so when I heard the Beastie Boys, and then I, uh, you know, okay, I like to geek out on stuff, and I was like, they're white, yeah, okay, they're white, they're Jewish, <laughs> and I love that 
they didn't care about any of that, and they didn't let their labels that everybody else had put on them yeah. define what their music was going to be. And they also didn't. They didn't. They just owned the music. They they didn't play up anything. They didn't say we're different and unique because we're three white Jews from book you know Brooklyn. They didn't do any of that. They yeah. just led with the music. And you know, I mean, Rick Rubin produced that album. Yeah. So they had some serious heavyweights and 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 you know, Fight for Your To Party, which I don't know if it's true or not, but the legend is that they hate that song um, mm. because it's not how they had intended to do it. That, oh. So the story apparently is that they were on tour with Run DMC, okay. and that there was no guitar in that in that music. Really? And then Ruben added the guitar afterwards, and it was too late. No. And they hate the song, and I think they're happy for the song because it allowed them to. But it's not the song that they would ever that they were ever proud of. See, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it makes sense because Ruben was a producer from Def Jam. Yep. And Slayer was on that. Album Carrie King played the lead, and and it's and I think that's what confused a lot of people because okay, so it is rap. These guys are white, yeah, that's kind of weird. But now there's a, a thrash metal guitar playing yeah. on this track. Like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Right. So they actually did not want that to they happen. They did not want that on there. That is fascinating. I had no idea. And, and I think Ruben, in his brilliance, I think, or I don't know why, but I, if I, he was probably going. This is going to be the hit song, mm-hmm. and as with a lot of artists, they don't, the hit song isn't the song that they would actually ever, you know, want to be known for. Yeah, but it allowed them to open it up. So when I got that at the album, and then it was like, okay, Fight for Your Right, that's great. But then I heard No Sleep Till Brooklyn, I was like, oh, this is this is what this is really about. Yes, you know, this is this is actually the music. Yeah. and and I've you know I, I because I'm not really a music person, I really love it, but. Uh, you know, they, I have kind of geeked out on Beastie Boys and followed their whole career. And I, I remember probably my favorite instrumental album of all time is, is an album called the, the In Sounds from Way Out. Mm. Um, and it's the Beastie Boys and where they pay, they play all the instruments. Okay, really? Uh, on this complete full instrumental album. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's kind of an acid jazz kind of thing. Um, and where I was like, well, these guys are really talented. Yes. Yeah, I just, I just, I just thought that no, you don't need to live up to any label. Yeah. Just pursue the thing you love and make it your own. Yeah. And they, they didn't apologize for it. Nor did they promote it. Yeah. They, they were just the Beastie Boys, and everybody accepted them because of that. Yes. And they, they, and the, and I can only imagine the shit they went through in getting to the point in that scene. To get to the point where they're good enough and famous enough to get an, an album, a record deal, and stuff, which you know you, there were no YouTube back then, so they just they, they had to earn oh yeah the right to do it, and those people didn't look like that. I remember, you know, it's funny you say that. I hear I, I heard a story about the fact that you know they had opened for Madonna, yeah, and, which I think she liked them and she thought they were kind of quirky and funny, so you know she had them in the opening slot and people. Hated them yeah. so much, <laughs> so it, that actually backfired in their faces because they thought, "Hey, we're getting on a national tour." Yeah. But people hated them so much that it was like they started this kind of negative reaction, yeah. right? That was widespread. So yes, to your point, it would be really interesting to to, to watch, you know, before yeah. that that album uh, "License to Ill" just went massive. Yeah, like what their path was. Yeah, and I don't know as much about it, but I know like I think some people wrote them off as being like these punky fun you know mischievous yeah. guys and then they and they didn't then they didn't actually see the brilliance of their music it's it's kind of like so I'm friends with Eric M who you know some listeners may know you know from early much music days and now mm-hmm. Yummy Mummy Club and I remember talking to Erica and I I'm going to guess it was either 87 or 88 and she we know each other from camp and mm-hmm. and I I think she was on Much Music at this point. She was at camp. So you actually knew her before Much Music? No, but I met her in 87. So I think she was on Much Music by that point or maybe the next yeah. year. Oh, she, no, she definitely was, yeah. 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 Her mom and uncle owned the camp that, that I went to and ah. so her whole family are lifelong friends. Okay. But but I remember talking to her and she said something about Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. And I said, those guys are nothing but a joke band. <laughs> like, if I had a million dollars, that's a really fun song. We'll never hear from them again. Funny, and she said, "No, you, no, you don't understand how 
how brilliantly talented these guys are. Oh, really? Like, what do you know, VJ? <laughs> no, these guys, we're never going to hear these guys again. <laughs> That's hilarious. They've done well. Uh, they've done well. They have. Yeah. yeah. I think the first song was actually a Bruce Coburn cover, wasn't it? Uh, it, it Lovers uh, in a Dangerous uh, Time. They did a cover of Lovers in a Dangerous Time, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the video was them in the back of a pickup truck. Just driving, driving around Scarborough, yeah. But yeah, so, so I think I think a lot of people wrote off the Beastie Boys in the same way. Oh yeah, um, without seeing, I think they were I think they're brilliantly talented musicians. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, next one, Vancouver band. She stole my beer. Sparks off the guardrail. Yeah. This and and most people probably don't know the band. Um, I don't I don't know how big they were in the end. They started as a Grateful Dead cover band. Did they really? I did see. I didn't know that. I don't know yeah. a lot about them. I've heard of them. I'm not super familiar, but yeah, I think they have two albums: yeah. "Sparks of the Guardrail" and "Mule." So why I think they were really why they were really important to me, and why that that song is really important, because I'd never, I didn't geek out on music. I, you know, I I didn't discover music in the same way. I mean, I discovered Beastie Boys because of "Fight for Your Right at the Party." It yeah. was a very you know mass appeal song. When I got to so I went to Queens University in Kingston. Uh, like going to a bar to see a band, I was mm-hmm. like, people do that. <laughs> do I know that? What if I, I don't know this band? Who would? Do, why would you do that? Why would you go see that? So that whole world of just going to a little club to see a band that you've never heard of yeah. was just so foreign to me. It was just something we didn't do. Yeah. My parents didn't do. My family didn't do. Yeah. Uh, so that was one part. The second part was as I started to discover the Grateful Dead and I kind of thought like that's the pot hippie band right that's like all I kind of knew yeah. and then as I started to get into like oh this is actually great music and uh, and so a friend said like hey why don't you come check out this band called She Stole My Beer they used to be a cover band this was the f- you know the first intimate live band experiences that I would have seen okay. and it was probably first or second year um, because I'd seen big big concerts obviously yeah but this small band I'd never heard of in a bar, and there were drugs involved. Ooh. But, um, but that you know, so that total that time of my life, like you know, we're talking not, probably eighty nine or ninety, yep. maybe ninety one, and seeing this band with a Hammond organ and two drummers. And there's seven of them, I think. Right? And there's, yeah, it was a massive band. Yeah, I'll just I'll just never forget that live performance and how and I was just, it was just it just showed me like it was at Alfie's pub in Kingston and I'm like so where were they playing that there's like a couple hundred people here yeah. how much are they making for that like and they're killing it yeah and uh I just I just had never had access to that mm-hmm. and uh and so they will always be that band that I saw never heard of before and really hadn't really heard of again yeah yeah um cuz they didn't I think they had one other album that was it yeah. and then they broke up yeah and uh, last I hear, or last I heard, one of the guys is doing sound in a theater in Whistler because uh, Pat Kelly, who's a friend, is in is uh, has a show called This Is That on CBC Radio. Yeah. And and Pat and Peter did a live show in Whistler, and I was talking about the band. And he was like, "That guy was there. He was the sound guy. <laughs> no way. At the theater. That's hilarious. Yeah." <laughs> So that's I don't know if they're playing music or like, I know nothing else. There's nothing else out there about them. Yeah, I I don't know any. I know they had two records and and just kind of faded into obscurity. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I didn't even like the second one. I thought Sparks Off the Guardrail was a great album, and I, I think it says a lot about like so much there. You know, how can you be in my mind that good? I thought they were really talented, and then it just and it just goes away. Yeah. Why did the band break up? There's so many questions about this. Yeah. And um, but hearing it takes me back to the live performance and being mesmerized by yeah. the live performance. That is a special memory. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think you know back to the days where, again, same time you would see these bands in bars, and it's a very intimate setting. You know, when you see a band in in, in an arena or a stadium, it's not as intimate. It's just way yeah. too big. But when you see a live act in a bar and they're good, that's a special thing. Yeah. And it was such a small little club. Yeah. I don't think Alfie's exists anymore. But, and then I saw them again a couple other times at other places that were bigger. Uh, but that first night at Alfie's Pub, seeing them, yeah. I was like, now I get how people can geek out on music. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that's what it's about. It's not listening to an album at home. 
This no. is this live performance is what it's about. You just reminded me. I, I went to school in Sudbury, and so we used to go to this place called the Townhouse. Yeah, that was like this little divey place, but they attracted great bands. And so uh, I saw the Tea Party there, yeah. and they were lugging their own gear. Three dudes, first album just came out, so not popular at all. You know that I think they they were just on the radio. You know, people were kind of buzzing about them a little bit, but they came in with all that. They were humping their own stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and we watched them live, and they were explosive. Like they blew this little place apart. Huh. It was incredible. And again, one of those things that you you know, you can listen to the record, and that's fantastic. But seeing a band live in a, in, a, in an intimate setting like that is just a complete you know different yeah. situation. And it creates this weird expectation. I remember again because I was so naive to that whole world. There was a band, Leslie Spit Trio. Yes, uh, I love them. UFO. Oh, sorry. Maybe it was, it was either them or it was the the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Also great. Of the same era, right? Exactly I think the same early era. Yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And so one of the female lead singer, one, I think it was maybe Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Okay. Um, we have to go back to Leslie Spitrio though. Yeah. I love that band. And maybe it was that, but it, it, one of the I saw one of those two bands okay. and the female lead singer whose name escapes me and I'm embarrassed uh, now. Um, that's bad. Me too. I can't remember it. And she ended up doing a duo with one of the other. Anyhow. I, you know, my friends and I go and we see them at, at this place called AJ's Hangar. And it was a big, big, bigger kind of bar. Where was that? In Kingston. Okay. And then we came to Toronto the next day. We drove in for something. And my friend and I were having lunch on Queen Street. And she was our waitress. No. And I was like, because I was I like, That's, <laughs> we just saw her last night. It makes sense though, right? And I was like, but she's a star. She was on stage at AJ's Hangar. And she's now she's bringing us nachos. Yeah, I'm not saying that in a demeaning, minimized no. way. I, you know, I, my background's in comedy. I know yeah, yeah. it brought this the reality of you know you can be a, an absolute sensation on stage, but to make it work as an artist, mm -hmm. yeah, you get up and you do stuff maybe you don't want to do. Yeah, because you're you're pursuing something that's you're completely passionate about. Yeah, I think that kind of thing is commonplace more so now than maybe. You know, back then in the '90s, because when you signed a record deal, it was very conventional, right? You got your kind of got your um, like an advance, or yeah, your advance. You, yeah. you you signed a deal and you got your advance before yeah. the record came out, and so you know a lot of people would would have quit their jobs as waitresses or whatever they were doing, and kind of lived the rock star life until the money ran out and then, yeah. you know whatever. But yeah, very interesting. <laughs> Did you mention when you saw her? Uh, we're like, hey, we're, are you in Bourbon Tabernacle Choir? She's like, yeah. And I was just like, yeah, that's me. He's like, yeah. Right, uh, what do you want to eat? And we're like, oh, we saw you at AJ's hangar. She's like, oh, it's, yeah. She was, she was, she was oh, lovely okay, and nice, okay. but not bitter or anything, but just not like, you know. And, and then when I eventually kind of found my way into comedy and then realized that I didn't want to do that. Mm. I, and and again, that's not anything. I was just like, I just, I completely respect the journey of, of doing that to make the thing. I'm not that devoted where I'm willing to spend three quarters of the day in a situation that's less than appealing because the one quarter of the day, you know, blows my mind. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, I like to do, have the whole day be good. <laughs> good for you. So I always worked and had comedy. And not that, you know, work was amazing, but it was something that I was as equally as passionate about. Yeah, no, I did the same thing. I mean, I worked in finance for 22 years, and, yeah. and because I, you know, I was writing books, yeah. but still, I mean, I would have had to, it, it was just a better life, right? Yeah. It was, uh, there's a little bit more money involved, and that, I waited until the time was right to kind of make the jump, but, yeah. you know, I could have just went in and said, I'm going to be a writer. And, yeah. You know, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So it's Kate Fenner. Right. That, That's uh, right. Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Yes. That was her name, Kate okay. Fenner. Yeah. And she ended up doing a duo with one of the other guys from the band. But yeah. but anyhow, yeah, that image sticks in my brain. Yes. So now Leslie Spit Trio. Yeah. Fantastic. They're a little three piece. Yeah. Obviously a trio. Yeah. Um uh, from Toronto and they had a their first single was called UFO. It was a great, great song. Very obscure. Yeah. But awesome. Yeah. And they also did uh Angel from Montgomery by uh, John Prine. They covered that. Yes, huh. it was kind of a rocked up version. It was yeah, actually yeah, quite okay. good. Yeah. And but again, where are they? You know, I don't know where they. Yeah, I have no idea. Where? You know, I I I didn't look them up. We'll, yeah. We'll get them on the show. 
It's such a Toronto name. Too. <laughs> oh, it's a, like the Leslie Spit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that band. Yeah, but not many people know about them, so it was really cool when you said that. No, yeah, I think they did like they did the college, you know, scene. Yeah. Uh, like around that time, I think it was like it was you know it was she stole my beer and it was Leslie Spit Trio, Bourbon Aqua Choir, and the Inbreds. Yeah, and. Uh, Big Sugar maybe did a yeah. little bit in there. Tea Party was in there. The tea towards... Party, Sky Diggers. Yes. You know. Were... Uh, lowest of the Low, Stephen Stanley. Yep. And Cash. Yes. Oh, yeah. Andrew MPP, Cash. Andrew Cash. Went on to be a politician. <laughs> I think right? he's on MPP, yeah. Yeah. Whose brother, Peter Cash, was in Sky Diggers. I forgot all. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I forgot all about that. Yeah. That's hilarious. And the Rio Statics. And the real stuff. Yeah, I just yeah. had Dave Bedini on the show a couple weeks ago. He's fantastic. Guy. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah he's doing his, his newspaper, yes. uh, Western Phoenix. Yeah, and um, he was on uh, the. I used, to, I used to host the Monkey Toast, and uh, Dave was on the show a few times. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, not, I mean, the real Statics are you know an amazing, legendary band, um, but his. Uh, he wrote a book called Baseballissimo. Yes. Because uh, he's a big baseball fan. I'm a massive baseball fan. So yeah. I love him for that. Yeah. He's written great books. Yeah. He's written like 14 books now. Yeah. But fantastic. And he's a huge sports fan, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very insightful guy. Very oh, yeah. Very intelligent yeah. guy. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Your next tune. Wow. We're going to go all the way over the other way and go to classical with Pavarotti performing Puccini. And it's, I think it's Nessun Dorma. Nessun Dorma. Nessun Dorma. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this, I don't know that there is a more powerful vocal performance than the end of Nessun Dorma, Pavarotti singing it. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's Puccini, it's from an opera, okay. um, whose name I don't even remember, but it's a very, you know, um, critical point of this opera where a, a, a man has said to a, a princess that if you can guess my name then you can have me executed and uh, and if you can't guess my name then I get to marry you and this mm. is this crux point anyhow and he, and, he, and he sings this nobody ever sleeps I think is is Nessun Dorma translated I you know be honest I, I would hear this my family's Italian uh, my mom's main name was Vocino okay and um, and so we would hear that you know they would sing Nessun Dorma in the family around the you know not <laughs> not like a tenor, <laughs> but they and so I knew it kind of in that and it almost it was almost like a folksy you know Italian song yeah. and then I heard the op the opera version of it and and then the Pavarotti version of it and this for me I mean I don't know opera at all okay. and like classical and like country and bluegrass and, and every other and heavy metal mm -hmm. I may not love the genre but I think that you can appreciate somebody who who excels in the genre right mm -hmm. you go like I don't love country music but holy man George Jones killed it in that genre Respect right like they are absolutely and so you listen to that song Nessun Dorma and it's an incredible song when you listen to the Pavarotti performance, and I've geeked out and listened to a whole bunch of other performances of people doing the opera and people just doing the song live. Okay. I think what you see is that there are people who are incredible musicians, incredible performers, and then there are those people who are not of this earth. Okay. So you go and see any professional tenor singing Nessun Dorma, and then watch Pavarotti. Mm. And you see, as an opera idiot, I could see it. Nobody touches this guy. Really? It's not even in the same ballpark. You know, it reminds me of, we had Robin Duke on Monkey Toast. Robin Duke was on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's a wonderful performer now. She's in uh, Women Fully Clothed. And I remember, you know, talking to her about her days on Saturday Night Live. It, she was there during the Eddie Murphy years. And so all these people on Saturday Night Live have made it, right? Yeah. You can't get in the comedy world much more successful and acknowledged than you're good enough to be on Saturday Night Live. Right. And talking to her about all those people, and she said, within all those people, they all knew from day one, Eddie Murphy was going to be a star. Yeah. There was nobody funnier, nobody even remotely as talented as Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And they're top of the pile. Yeah. So I think the same thing about Pavarotti, even though I don't really know much about opera, but I like this guy was so above and beyond anybody in in that world. And when you listen to that song, 
the George Jones song brings emotions because of my mom, but a pure raw emotions of hearing somebody hit a note mm -hmm. doesn't come. Nobody, there's nothing like it. Yep. There's absolutely nothing like the end of that song. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. And I, you know what's weird is that I think the very first time I saw his performance and got, was open to the world, to see, this is kind of horrible. It was like an HBO commercial, right? And 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 I'll never forget it. Like it's it's the track of him singing underneath all this footage of other HBO shows, and then they they it's he pulls that last word, and I think it's translated, and I will win. Right is the last words of that song, and I will win. And he said, "Whatever it is in time," and it goes to the roof. And I just remember going, "Holy shit! What yeah. did I just see?" Yeah, that's what Pavarotti. Because I hadn't heard of Pavarotti and everything. I was like, "Oh, that's what everybody's talking about." <laughs> Whoa! Well, it just goes to show you, you know, these these people are, are are fascinating musicians. I know Pavarotti. Yep. But I, I can't tell you anything that he's done. I know what he looks like, yeah, yeah. you know, but I've never really delved in. And that's one of the most fascinating things about music for me and doing this show yeah. in particular is digging deeper. Yep. Right. And finding this stuff and really, in, you know, it's it's enrichment. Yep. It really is. Yeah. You know, I um, I was talking to, to a guy from Boston. Uh, yesterday, the band Boston or the city? Uh, the city. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was telling me about one of these these bands that I knew. Yeah. You know the band called Budgie. They're completely obscure. It's 1975. And I said, yeah, I know who they are. And uh, Metallica covered one of their songs. Yeah. Right. And he said, you get no, you got to listen to this song. You know. And I said, okay, I, I will, I will. And so I did, and I loved it. Yeah. I was fascinated by this song. Yeah. And had he not told me that. You know, I was eh, budgie. I kind of know who they are, but digging into this stuff, yeah. you know, is fantastic. And I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This. it's very cool. Yeah. Okay, you have one more tune, my friend. It is by Jason Mraz, and it's called "I'm Yours." So this was a, is a for me is a completely different emotional reaction. It's more of an intellectual reaction more mm -hmm. than anything. So the background on this song and on Mraz, who I. I, I like his music. You know, I, I really do. Yeah, uh, I think he's a talented songwriter. I think he's a talented performer. Maybe a little too surfy, acoustic, you know, folky, Jack Johnson-y. I was just going to say me. Jack Johnson, yeah. Yeah, you know, but yeah, that's great. Good for him. He's, he's killed it. So I'm Yours hit, the highest it hit on Billboard was number six. Okay. Okay. It hit number six in September of 2008. In June of 2007... Before the song was ever on any album. So here's a song, was not on any album. It's a single at this point. No, only played live. Was never released anywhere, only played live. And this is the beginning days of YouTube. Google brought, bought YouTube in, I think, 2006. Okay. And 2007 is when this thing starts to really take off. He goes, a guy from who, he made his career in the early 2000s in, this, in the coffee shops of San Diego. He's yeah. originally from Virginia. You can't get much more American yeah. than a guy who was born in Virginia who then moves to San Diego and performs in coffee houses. Right. He goes in June of 2007 to a concert, to play a concert at some festival in Boulange, Sweden. Population of that town is 51,000 people. It's not Stockholm. Right. I don't know how many people. I've seen the footage. I, could, I should have sent you the YouTube link to the thing. There's a couple thousand people in the crowd of an outdoor festival. Yep. And he begins to play the song. And in Boulogne, Sweden, a year and a half before this song hits number one in the Billboard's charts, these two, 3,000 people live know every bloody lyric. Wow. And they're singing with him. And it was that performance, apparently, that, that convinced him that he had to put it on his next album. Mm -hmm. So that's why he put it on the next album, then it became you know a year and a half later on the, on the Billboard chart. And that, for me, was the moment when I saw that video I'm like, who is this guy, mm -hmm. and why are they? They know this song, and and I was kind of in between when it when he hit big, and so I was like, whoa, I discovered this thing. But these people in Sweden knew every lyric a year and a half before the mainstream, you know, music listening audience voted it good enough to be number six on the Billboard charts. Yeah, and he doesn't. It didn't exist on any album. And that was the power of YouTube, because people were just YouTubing kind of live concerts and stuff. 
And and this is before and this is they hadn't monetized it. Google had just bought it a year before. Like it was just starting out. You know, I guess there are other people that you would define as YouTube musicians. Yeah. Um, but much like in the same way that you could say that, you know, Barack Obama was the first internet president and maybe Justin Trudeau was the first social media president or prime minister. Mm-hmm. But while he may not have been a YouTuber, his career may have been made because of that. Mm-hmm. It still blows me away. And and when I when I saw that, I was like, music has changed. Oh, yeah. And and so now I use this in for disruption um, when I when I use music because I think what's my business hat and creativity hat looks at music and says music has gone through the complete cycle of disruption mm-hmm. that other categories and businesses are either in the middle of or will go through. Okay. So the thinking here is in the beginning there's the establishment and the establishment in music in in the beginning was four groups. It was the labels, mm-hmm. the retailers, the radio stations, and the artists. Okay. Right. The establishment. Those are the four key people. They all had they had a business model worked out. Labels like, we're going to pay this much. You're going to play this. You're going to sell it for this. Stations, you're going to make your money here. Artists get from the record sales and from the soap cans. That, right? Yep. And it was all worked out. It was very harmonious. Yep. And you couldn't become a member of the establishment. You had to get through the iron gates that the labels controlled right. and said, you know, and the service to the consumer was, there's way too much music out there. We'll just tell you what's good enough to listen to. Exactly. Okay? That's the first step. The second step is that we get power to the people and rebelliousness starts and there's chaos mm-hmm. and revolution. That's As true. we all know, in anarchy, there are no rules. <laughs> and so what happened in music was the internet came out and it was like, you don't have to have the man tell you what to listen to. You can listen to whatever the hell you want to and there's no rules. You want to pirate that shit? Go for it. Here's Napster. Yep. Right? So it's absolute chaos in the music industry. People are losing money, making money. Nobody knows where they make their money, who's the boss, how do they, you know, it's, cra- it's chaos. Yeah. And then what ended up happening, as which happens in every category, is you go from chaos and then you go from the power of the people, people saying we can do what we want, absolute freedom. In music, we went from you don't have to have the man listen to, you have to have the man tell you what to listen to, to consumers going, can someone just tell me what to listen to? So there's a power vacuum that occurs. Yes. Because people actually want to be led. And people, you know, you can book your own travel and hotels on your. Who the hell wants to do that? I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to sift through the millions of albums out there. Someone tell me what to listen to. Yeah. And so what ends up happening, the complete cycle of disruption, is that there's just a new establishment. And so when we've what's kicked out the other side, it's not the labels, radio stations, retailers, and artists anymore. Mm-hmm. It's artists, and it's Live Nation, mm-hmm. and it's Spotify, and it's Apple Music. Yeah. And the model is completely thrown. So it's a completely different model. They're not making the same money in the same way. People are getting paid. But it's the same idea. But it's the same idea. Yeah. And how do you bust in? You gotta take down the establishment. Yeah. So I think you can use that model across, you know, every single category and we know where it's going. So in twenty sixteen, for example, the use of travel agents increased for the first time in a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people are like, yeah, I don't want to book <laughs> Travago? Yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm booking my own flights. Who the hell has time for that? Isn't that funny, though? Isn't that it's almost a sad comment on humanity, isn't it? In so, some ways. So we want all the control, but we don't want to do any of the work. We don't do any of the work, right? We don't do any of the work. My friend Todd Webster uh, is with Edison Research, yeah, and and Tom does this amazing study called Infinite Dial, and it looks at the the media consumption habits of American consumers every year. Yep. And he had this great insight on like everything is going up, right? Everything. Paid content, podcast, streaming audio, like everything is going up. Yep. Well, what's really interesting is that people aren't discovering music anymore. Mm. Because we're not being force fed stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's why we have Spotify playlists. Put your favorite songs in your own playlist and you can, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. people aren't discovering music. At least they're not discovering it in the same way as they used to. Yeah. And that's sad. That's a very sad thing, especially based on what I was just saying before. Yeah. You know, there's so much in there to discover. Yeah. And yet, you know, people are just complacent saying, mm. yeah, know, step in a little playlist. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know? the, yeah. What people do now is their discovery, myself included, is I'll, 
if there's a song I really like, I did it last night. I did it last night on the way home. So I will, I heard, something came on. I heard the fray, how to save a life. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? That's a good song. Like, you know, it got totally overplayed. Yeah. But it's actually a good song. And uh, I want to see a different take at it. And so I go to YouTube and I search how to save a life cover. Yeah. And see weird random consumers playing this on a ukulele on a piano on a guitar. Like, yeah. just to seeing like, where can this song go? And yeah. how can it be rediscovered? And for that song, it can't. It's everybody. It's the same song. Yeah. No, I do. I do the same thing. There is so much richness out there. Yeah. And I'll do the same thing. If it's an older song, I'll see if somebody, you know, covered it um, more recently with a better production, for yeah. example. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, there's so much out there to discover. I heard a great episode of a podcast yesterday. Mm -hmm. I think the podcast is called Heavyweight. It's a Gimlet Media podcast. But I guess he had a friend who had this set of CDs, seven CDs, called Sounds from the South. So he takes these seven CDs, and he has a friend who's a musician okay. doing weird experimental shit. Yep. And this friend is living in the basement of a warehouse. And he, this guy takes him these seven CDs, and he goes, you got to listen to these seven CDs. Yeah. This is incredible. Music. Sounds of the South. Sounds this of the like South. It's like a KTEL feature. It's, it's like, <laughs> it was like from the deep South U.S. and people who had like gone out and, and recorded like these heritage African-American songs from the African-American community of them singing these soulful songs. Oh, wow. Songs, right? Okay. And it was like that these songs are going to be lost because no one's recording these or something like that. Okay. So he gives his friend these seven CDs. Does not hear from the friend again until that friend launches his own CD called Play. Okay. It's Moby. No. And so Moby took these. See, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not saying he's evil or anything like that. He just got these CDs, <laughs> but turned this incredible music and then he DJ'd it. <laughs> wow. What's the term? Mixed it. And th you know. Yeah. And made it r ridiculously commercially successful. Yeah. But the heart of all that Moby music are these seven CDs called The Sounds of the South. Wow. And, um, you know, the whole whatever. And uh, I was so, it's, it's a great episode, but it's just this so amazing that he can take these seven CDs and that music inspires him to integrate it with his own process and talent yeah. to create one of the most, probably the most commercially successful in terms of licensed music yeah. albums of all time. Yeah. Like, yeah, but th that it was just, it was all off this, these seven amazing CDs, which That's nobody knows about. Very interesting. Yeah. So is the guy who gave him the CDs kicking himself saying? Well, the whole, <laughs> the episode <laughs> is about him wanting to get his CDs back. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of cash in terms of a royalty or a spiff or something. Well, yeah, no, he, did, he didn't. He's like, I don't want money or anything. He just I just want CDs my CDs back. back. <laughs> That's it. Really? And so they go to Moby's house, and it's interesting because he's saying how he's questioning his own success in life, and he's comparing himself to people he went to school with, and and Moby is the one who made it. Mm. And he feels horrible at his own because he's a filmmaker and not doing what he wanted to do. Okay. And and they said, and he tells Moby this, like, you're the massive success and I feel horrible about my own life. Yeah. And Moby says, you gotta know that the lowest point of my personal life was at the highest point of my career success. Where I was really? in a hotel in Hong Kong or somewhere and there's four penthouse suites and it's me, Bon Jovi, Madonna, and P. Diddy. It's <laughs> <laughs> taking these four things. And I wanted to jump off the, like, through the window. Wow. Uh, because I was that depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I don't know that there's a more diverse flo hotel floor in the history of music. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like, hey, you guys want to come over for a beer? I don't think that was said. <laughs> well, probably not. I don't think it was. That's interesting. Yeah. Poor Moby. So that's a tortured artist right there, Ron. Tortured artist. Yeah. Who, it's almost like he, I don't know, I've never met the man, obviously. I haven't geeked out a ton. And I, I don't even know if I've ever owned it. or. But it almost seems like he was, a, he was a meme before there were memes. Oh, for sure. And felt that he had to justify his artistic integrity or like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know what he's doing now. I'm, I'm sure he's, he's making stuff, but nothing wrong it. with that music for what it was. Yeah. 
to be licensed for a car commercial is pretty amazing. God, I mean, I've licensed more music for for commercials and stuff, um, and including one that kind of sounded like the phrase "How to Save a Life That We Couldn't Afford," the real song. Yeah. I wanted to license um, CNC Music Factory's "Everybody Dance Now." Nice. Okay, and it was for a for a Premium Plus Cracker commercial. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we do the, you know, we have a budget. And we go to the band. Yeah. And we go. We want to license your song, and it's a needle drop. Yeah. So the needle drop is like we don't mess with your song. We just we play it. Yeah. And they come back and they go, okay, this is the this is the fee, but you may know that the. The band is CNC Music Factory, but the song is CNC Music Factory featuring the woman. Oh, that's right. Who says, Everybody dance now. Yeah. Uh, that's her only line. Or, yeah. You know, one, and I think it was like the catalog, the writer of the song wanted like 80 grand. The band wanted 80 grand. And the woman, who sang the one line, right. wanted 80 grand Good for Lord. a seven week airing of the, of the commercial for their song. It was like $240,000. Should give you a return on that? No. No. <laughs> so we got, went out and got a Raise a Little Hell. Oh, <laughs> my trooper. My trooper. Bargain. What'd you pay for that? <laughs> Not 240 <laughs> <laughs> I think, it, well, I don't know what I can tell tales out of school. I don't know. Whatever. I think it was like 60 grand or yeah. something. It may have been 60. Maybe it was even less. Yeah. But. It's such easy money, you know? And like, I remember we did, we did this once where uh, ELOs hold on tight. Yep. Sometimes you'll do it as a, what's called a guide track, right? Or a yeah. scratch track. Yeah. Which is like, we're just putting this song against some visuals so you get the feel for the music that we'll originally compose. Yeah. And so we did this, we put hold on tight. And the client said, I just want that song. Oh. I want that one. And we're like, all right, we'll, we'll see what we can see, do. Yeah. They wouldn't sell it. Oh, really? They just would not. Yellow. It wasn't really? like we can't afford it. It was like they would not do it. And wow. I think they eventually did. But at that point, they're like, we will not sell this song. Wow. And so we had to go to composers and say, we need a song that's as close <laughs> to hold on tight in feel and theme and everything as legally possible. Yeah. Don't want to break any laws. Do yep. not want to break any copyright. Nope. It's their artist that, you know, but it's got to be close. Yeah. And we did. <laughs> and then, it was a song for CDI College. Okay. And I'm going to hell for doing it. <laughs> just, just like, see, I want to go back and listen to this now to see how close it, it is. It was like, it was Reach for the Future was the name of the song. Okay. And for what it was, it was a great song. And I, I want to give credit where credit is due, but I won't because I'm afraid I get it wrong of who composed it and who did it. But yeah. that's the weird part of music where you're like, we're going to write a song for a computer college company and it's going to air on a commercial and I, I there's a little part of my soul that dies when we do that <laughs> just a little part <laughs> just a little part you're going to hell for sure now <laughs> yeah. no question yeah all right that is the end of your song list sir yeah this has been an excellent chat thank you That's so much chat. for coming out yeah. this is something i never get to talk about i don't ever deal with this well come on by yeah, I'm, here, awesome. I'm, I'm here most of the time. So, Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Okay, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Ron Tite. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 